thanks for joining me for this episode of Sell and Gene the Podcast. My guest today is Bob Levis, director of the CLL Society, which stands for Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia. Bob is many things, including a master's prepared engineer, former vice president and general manager for Air Products Asia, a consultant, a member of Cell and Gene's editorial advisory board, a proud husband, father, and grandfather, and he is living with CLL. And his path to sitting with me today is just remarkable. And I couldn't be happier to have him as a guest on the pod. So, Bob, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. Sure, Aaron. Nice to join you for this podcast. Right? I'm excited. All right. Well, let's jump right in. So, you were diagnosed with CLL in 2002. And your story is very powerful. And you were one of the early experimental trial participants in pet medicine for Dr. Carl June's CAR-T therapy, uh, having received your genetically modified T-cells on March 12th, 2013. And you were in complete remission for another three plus years. Am I right so far? Correct. Okay. All right. So, so much has happened since then. So talk to us about your journey with CLL, and then we can talk a little bit more about your relationship with Penn and Dr. June, and then of course, certainly your participation in the clinical trial itself. But let's talk about your journey with CLL. Sure. Uh, I was actually on an assignment uh, for um, uh, air products and chemicals uh, based in Asia. I was based in uh, Singapore. Um, I was 51 years old. Uh, third year of the of an eight year assignment, and uh, uh, the company was used to giving us annual physicals. And uh, you know that uh, third year in Singapore, I, I got some blood work back, and it showed high white count. What's that? Well, check it again later. It may be infection. I did check it, and uh, it was higher still. And um, that led to well, let's eliminate some things and see what it can be. And ultimately, a bone marrow biopsy showed that I had chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Um, it, shocking. Um, uh, I was in the prime of my career. And, mm-hmm. you know, the first question that comes to mind is, you know, so how long do I have? Right. I ended up going to uh, back during a trip back to the States uh, to see Michael Keating at MD Anderson. And... Uh, they did some additional testing and he told me that, well, you have the slow progressing variety, uh, 13Q deletion, go live your life. Um, you've got years uh, before you'll need treatment, which was the case. I went back to Singapore, you know, till 2008 when I retired and it was time for some treatment and um, moved back to the States, the best available treatment at that time um, was, called FCR, fludarabine, cytoxin, and rituxan, a monoclonal antibody, which I did in 2008. <clears throat> and then uh, um, I was in remission for a while. Actually went back to work with another company, went back to Asia for a while. Um, and uh, I was fine uh, for that period of time. Then in 2012, uh, to my surprise, I relapsed. Um, and not just relapsed, I relapsed to a, a more aggressive variety called 17P deletion. And um, 
I uh, was in a bad way. Uh, my lymph nodes started to <clears throat> swell up again. Um, and um, I was weak, uh, uh, low uh, hemoglobin, low platelets, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, uh, I needed help. So I, I went to Penn Medicine, got on a clinical trial that compared something new, a brutinib, a kinase inhibitor that was working well. I heard about it from John Bird at Ohio State. And um, it was a randomized trial. And I was randomized to the other comparison drug, ofatumumab, which didn't work at all. And uh, at that time, uh, pharmacyclics was not crossing patients over to abrutinib, which was working well. And that led me to um, being in the right place at the right time. And uh, uh, Penn Medicine coming out with CAR-T, you know, Carl June's CAR-T. I, I communicated with Carl two years before saying, well, what is CAR-T? Am I eligible for it? I actually found his email some way and sent him an email. And he sent me an email back. Uh, I was surprised. He said, well, you're, you're not eligible at this point. But by 2012, in a bad way, uh, I was eligible. And I became the fourth person anywhere to try CAR-T after the uh, initial three in 2010 showed positive results. Um, and that, that's where I met Carl June and his team, Bruce, Bruce Levine, um, Joe Freyetta, and the you know, most capable doctors at Penn. Uh, and I went through CAR-T and it was quite the ride. Um, um, as you said earlier, they took my T-cells um, um, through apheresis, went, took them to the lab, modified them, and then eight weeks later came back and put them back into me. It took about 15 minutes uh, to put them back in my vein and flushed with some saline. And uh, Bruce Levine was there said, you're one of our astronauts. Um, wasn't sure how to take that, but um, I moved to Philadelphia. They said, we want you close. Um, a week after I got those new uh, genetically modified T cells, I started to get fevers and I was hospitalized in uh, you know, a special ward. <clears throat> um, and for the next eight days, I uh, had what they call the cytokine release syndrome, uh, horrible flu uh, reaction from these CAR T cells, my own T cells modified, killing the leukemia in, in my body. And at that stage, I, I had palpable lymph nodes, you know, in my neck and groin, my armpits. I could feel 30 of them. Wow. And, um, as I said, I was, I was in a bad way. And during that week, you know, my fevers were, you know, anywhere from 100 to 103. Um, um, the chills, you know, the, you know, the shakes, um, heart rate, 100 beats per minute. <clears throat> and, um, you know, long story short, eight days later, uh, the fever broke and my lymph nodes went down. Blood work showed that my platelets were going back up, hemoglobin back up, and it was a scientific miracle. Uh, um, a bone marrow biopsy a, a month later showed that my leukemia was gone. No, no trace. Wow. Uh, needless to say, I was just amazed. I, I had my mm -hmm. life back. Sure. I was about 20 pounds lighter uh, from, you know, this whole experience I couldn't eat, but 
um, started to work back up and, and uh, CAR-T worked for me. Um, it, it was uh, a most incredible experience and uh, I, all the admiration in the world for, the, uh, for Carl June and his team who developed this technique that literally saved my life. Right. Um, Carl That's said uh, that um, I had three to four pounds of tumor burden and I only had uh, weeks, maybe months uh, to live at that point. But as I said, I got I got my life back uh, in, in 2013. That's amazing. No, it, it does sound, though, that you you were very educated. It seems as you're detailing your story, you were very educated about the not only what was going on, but who to contact. So you, you kind of cold emailed Carl June. I did. Uh, I forget <laughs> exactly how I found um, his, his email it was perhaps it was online. Probably. Uh, right. Um, made contact. And I mean, Carl and I have become friends. So uh, over the years, um, uh, shortly after I got my complete remission, um, he and I were both asked by different organizations, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, the Alliance for Cancer Gene Therapy, uh, to speak uh, in front of uh, doctors and donors and uh, people with blood cancer interested. And uh, so we, we met several times. Uh, we've met each other's families. And uh, he invited me to the uh, event at the Naval Academy. He's a Naval Academy grad. Um, where they recognized him for his outstanding achievement. And he invited my wife, Sue, and I down to the academy for the, the big event. And uh, so um, we stay in touch. And surprisingly, yeah. if I have a short question, I keep it short and sweet. Um, I'll email him and I usually hear within 24 hours back from him. Uh, so it's... it's um, um, a good positive relationship and he and the team continue to work on the next generation of, of CAR T for uh, all sorts of uh, cancers. For sure. For sure. Well, and I, uh, you mentioned a, a person we have in common who is Bruce Levine and he's also on our ed board. And uh, when we were launching cell and gene, I met with him in person and he toured me through their facility. It was wonderful, but he, one of the first things he told me was that I had to meet you. And so he gave me your contact information and oh. that's how, that's how we are here today. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity to meet you, hear your story. And it's remarkable. Um, so it's just, it's, it's very, very inspiring. Uh, how, how are you today? So what, where are we in your treatment path? Well, um, it seems that with my variety of CLL, uh, complex karyotype 17P, um, I relapse every three and a half years. And so I have to be prepared for what's next. Uh, I actually went through a second CAR-T while I eventually got onto a, a, a brutinib, and, you know, an oral kinase inhibitor. And there was a, a combo study of brutinib and CAR-T. And I uh, did that. That was my second clinical trial. Uh, or third, actually. And um, I got a partial remission from that, which lasted about three and a half years. And uh, um, most, you know, once the brutinib started to fail, that pathway started to mutate. 
I switched to what I was had researched and um, um, as th- the next option, I had a couple options, you know, venetoclax uh, uh, and obinutuzumab or a new drug by um, Loxo Oncology, Eli Lilly, that's um, not yet FDA approved. It's in clinical trials. And so I said, Let, let's try that. It, it, it's um, there were some positive results I learned about. Um, it's a non-covalent kinase inhibitor and it's oral, it's two pills a day. Um, and I've been on that for seven months. It's called Loxo 305 or Pyrtobrutinib. And uh, it's working. It's slowly bringing my uh, lymphocyte count down uh, to almost normal levels. And all my other blood work is normal and very few side effects. So um, um, I expect that this drug will eventually get FDA approval, but mm-hmm. um, so far, so good. Um, good, good. Well, that that's that's great. I'm thrilled to hear that. And I hope that it, there's just continuing, continues on the uptick and no, you know, the three and a half year point, it's only up. The, uh, you are the director of the CLL Society. So explain to us the CLL Society, what it is, your role as director, and what it's doing for the CLL community at large. Well, I'm actually on the board of directors, so I gotcha. am one of the uh, directors. But the, the CLL Society was formed about nine years ago by Dr. Brian Kaufman and uh, his wife, Patty. Um, Brian has CLL and um, he has a very similar case to mine. And he's, he's all, he's been through CAR T, you know, several years ago and is still in complete remission. But um, he used to write a blog about his experience with CLL and the, the various treatments. And then he decided to scale it up and actually form the CLL Society um, nine years ago. And uh, w- w- with a simple objective, uh, communicate with patients with CLL, um, share his experiences. He's a doctor and um, not just his experiences uh, about the disease itself, but also um, the treatments and what's coming down down the road. Uh, and he did that for a while, just he and his wife and maybe one or two others uh, part-time. Um, t- today, there's, there's five full-time you know, employees, four part-time. Um, there's a board of directors. Um, there's a, a medical advisory board, including 32 CLL um, and blood cancer specialists. Um, there's a website, there's a newsletter um, that gets some over 30,000, you know, u- unique users on this site and over 80,000 uh, page views per, per month. Um, and it's following the same premise. Let's communicate. Let's educate ourselves. Our tagline, trademark tagline is smart patients get smart care. Um, and it all follows from, from that. 
what's going on in CLL? What are patient questions? Uh, how can we help? What are the treatments? How are they evolving? What's new? How is the science evolving, including CAR-T and kinase inhibitors and monoclonal antibodies? And um, that's what we do. Uh, we, we, we've got uh, 39 uh, patient support groups across the United States over the past year and a half. That's mostly been you know, remote. Um, um, you know, virtual meetings, but, you know, some are starting to get back together and there's anywhere from 15 to 40 in each of these groups throughout the U.S. Um, not surprising, there's 15 to 20,000 new cases of CLL every year in the United States. So there are hundreds of thousands of people with CLL um, and um, different varieties, different treatments. So we're right in the middle of that. Uh, as, as um, educating um, uh, patients, helping them prepare for doctor appointments, getting them second opinions from some of the specialists on our medical advisory board. And as you can imagine, the, the past year, 90% of what we're talking about is COVID. I bet. Mm -hmm. And there's you know, a reason for that. Uh, there's some statistics that are a little bit scary. Over the past year, uh, there's been a couple of studies that have looked at, you know, patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And um, the one study said 32% of CLL patients who get COVID die. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, there's a reason for that. Our immune systems are compromised. Right. Our, our B cells um, where the, uh, you know, lymphocytes, um, cancerous lymphocytes reside. Um, are also the component of your blood that builds antibodies. So the second thing, statistic that's a little bit alarming, that is very alarming for CLL and lymphoma patients is um, when we get the COVID vaccination, 75% do not build antibodies. Um, and so we're left exposed. Right. Um, and you can do tests to check for the antibodies. And that's because the B cells are depleted. They, they've been targeted by, by, by different drugs and uh, the compromised immune systems. So if you see people like me out and about still masked up, mm -hmm. uh, even though I've had the uh, two Moderna COVID vaccinations, and my test showed I did have a, a low level of antibodies, so I'm somewhat protected. But if you see people out there masked up. It could be, you know, those of us with 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 a leukemia or a lymphoma. That's exactly that right. Don't have antibodies, and right. so we remain distanced and 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 masked up in in crowds. That's right. It's so important. Uh, and I'm thrilled that the CLL Society exists and all the work that it's doing to educate its members and the the community at large. Uh, because I'll say it again, you. It, it, from everything you've said so far, what I know of you from having worked with you the past few years, you are extremely educated on your own particular disease, where to go, how to find information. And while I would hope that many patients are like that, they, they just aren't. And so the fact that the CLL Society exists and it's a place where people can go to learn and share information is so incredibly important. So that that's wonderful. 
Um, Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, so in addition to everything that we talked about that you do up at, at the top of the call, uh, you also write original articles for not only Cell and Gene, but other organizations as well. Um, your most recent that is published on Cell and Gene is called The Effect of the, excuse me, the effect and risk of CT scans on blood cancer patients in clinical trials. And for, uh, I encourage our listeners to go read it. It's excellent. And you talk about the FDA's choices or alternatives to CT scans because of their existing uh, side effect on ionizing radiation on humans. And so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about the why behind the article and you know, what you hope will happen as a result of having written it? I, I think my, uh, I, I recall in grad school, um, um, many of us were doing research at, at Illinois, uh, working for the Atomic Energy Commission in, in, in the 70s, looking at materials uh, for nuclear reactors. And um, those studies, I remember reading about radiation. None of our research were we ever exposed to radiation, but I remember reading about it and reading about the effects of ionizing radiation and uh, that it causes, uh, potentially causes DNA damage and uh, leukemias, uh, lymphomas. Um, that was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And then I find myself with leukemia and in clinical trials where a standard uh, treatment baseline in any clinical trial is, you know, blood work, uh, EKGs, CT scans, bone marrow biopsies. And I uh, started to think about it more. Well, I mean, you know, when you go to the dentist, you know, you, you, you get an x-ray. Um, and I've always been wary of that, but do we have to do it every time? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And same goes. You know, a lot of there's a higher level of exposure of ionizing radiation from a CT scan than than an X-ray, for example. And so I started to dig into it. And yes, I I do I do my homework. I, I do dig deep, and I um, put something together that uh, I want to send to the FDA. Uh, thank you for publishing. I'm mm -hmm. going to send to the ASCO post. Um, once I fine tune it with evidence that shows that exposure to ionizing radiation uh, actually causes DNA damage. And in the paper, I talk about damage to a specific gene, TP53, which is a gene that helps repair damaged DNA. And even the TP53 can be damaged. And even though the low, this is a relatively low level, it's cumulative the exposures. And in some of these clinical trials, uh, patients are, 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 according to the trial document, required to get uh, CT scans every eight weeks. That's excessive. And uh, I think there are other options. Look at MRD testing, look at use of uh, M MRIs, imaging. And um, I um, would propose that until we've done a more detailed study, uh, connecting the dots and seeing the, the real effect. Uh, Biopharma, FDA, doctors should use these other methods 
to look for what they're looking for, you know, the mm-hmm. size of the spleen, size of lymph nodes. And um, um, until we can do some further study on uh, the, you know, the real effect of ionizing radiation. You know, so it's a patient opinion piece with some details to it. I mean, there's some papers that I reference in there. The, what happened to the Chernobyl cleanup workers, mm-hmm. you know, leukemias. Sure. Um, For the professionals who are listening to this podcast, so cell and gene, uh, people who, in cell and gene who have dedicated their careers to the sector, um, what would you say are the top takeaways you'd like them to understand from your perspective, the, the patient's perspective? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, these researchers, PhD researchers and um, doctors in this field of uh, cell and gene <clears throat> um, are pretty special people. Um, as you said, um, I have a bachelor of science, master of science degrees in engineering. And um, I try to study this stuff and I can go, I go only so deep, but I don't have a foundation in it. And to think, you know, my, as I said before, my admiration for the, the PhDs and, and doctors in this field um, is, is so strong because they have the foundation. They, they, they understand, you know, what it all means and they're doing developing new science based on their um, discoveries and their ed- education and their desire to solve a problem. So thank you. It's, it's impressive what they do. And they probably can't even keep up with the developments uh, because they're occurring so rapidly, as For you sure. know, and that you report on every, every day. Um, you know, I wonder how they do um, keep up with it all. Uh, I think that you know, one thing that comes to mind for your question is um, there should be more collaboration uh, because I, I think there's, um, you know, sometimes two separate organizations, uh, university research centers, um, biopharma are working on the same thing. I, I think more collaboration. I know there's a competitive uh, uh, um, issue there, but I think that um, more collaboration um, that comes goes beyond what is reported at, at ASCO or, or the various pay, you know, paper presentations. Um, another thing is the cost of some of these drugs. I think that um, um, the cost of a given drug, and many of them are biologics now, oral drugs, um, like, you know, Loxo, uh, 305, two pills a day. Um, they are not necessarily priced based on the amount of money that was put into the research to develop them and, and make them and, and supply them. Um, there's often a case where one company will develop something and then they'll recognize the market value and they'll sell it to another company for not just a couple hundred million dollars for uh, the cost, you know, what it cost them to, to develop it, but for several billion dollars because they know the market. And then that sets the price of the drug by the new company who's going to go manufacture it, often in China, um, for cents on the dollar, and then to charge $10 a pill. So 
I, I, I suppose the, the, there's an issue there for um, the medical community, uh, biopharma, insurance companies, uh, you know, cent, Center for Medicaid Services um, to consider. Mm-hmm. Give us a break. Um, you know, so far I've been able to afford these drugs. There are many who cannot. And That's right. so I think um, the cost of some of these drugs um, is an issue. So we need to work on that. Oh, we sure do. That's a whole other podcast. Yes, it, <laughs> so. it, it truly is. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, uh, we talked a lot of, you know, in the weeds of, of what your journey has been. But uh, to sort of end on a lighter note, uh, I always ask my guests at the end the very same question. And so here it is. Describe your ideal Saturday. Uh, my ideal Saturday. Um, probably one of two things um, or both. Um, I think it would be in the fall. The mm-hmm. fall is my favorite time of the year. I live in Pennsylvania, you know, love the leaves, love to be outside. And uh, so the first would be, you know, just time with my, uh, my family, uh, four grandchildren, one more on the way. And um, just playing ball in the backyard or kicking the ball or throwing water balloons, uh, riding the bike, spending time with them, um, and then having a barbecue um, and uh, just enjoying time with family. Um, if they're not available and they haven't been over the past year during COVID, because I've been, you know, um, staying safe until I got the vaccine. Uh, the other thing, uh, the, the safest place to be is a golf course. And so I knew uh, you were going to say that. Second thing, <laughs> uh, I'm a golfer. And so yeah. fall golf, I love it. Uh, so being out on a golf course uh, with my friends uh, on a nice fall day. Um, um, and then ending with a few beers and a barbecue. So, uh, you know, those would be uh, my, my Saturdays. And incidentally, um, those four grandchildren um, that I have, they were all born after 2013, after my uh, CAR-T worked. So yeah. I never would have met them. Oh. Had, you know, Carl June and the team not saved my life. So uh, that's pretty special. And so, oh, it uh, sure is. Oh, I, that's, that's just wonderful. What a, what a wonderful thought. And I knew you were going to say two things, time with your grandchildren and golfing. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> we know each other well enough. That's, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, um, well, that brings us to the end of our time on this episode of Selling Gene, the podcast. So thanks again, Bob, for your for sharing your story and all the excellent information, your work with the CLL Society. Um, it's been a pleasure. Well, it's a pleasure to know you as well. And thank you for what you do. Nice talking with you. Absolutely. All right, uh, listeners, that wraps us up. We'll talk to you soon. 